I care about the scriptures and I care about their unique practice and I want to drive each verse into your heads and help you love them more. But I don't want to be stuffy and stifled. I want the joy of the Lord to show through uh, and I just want you to know that I don't belong on a pedestal. I'm just a regular guy, just like David. David was a shepherd from a field not that long ago. He got put in this position because of his humility before God, not because of his greatness. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So where we left off, David is the king of the southern tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom had been really taken over by Abner, who was Saul's main general. And he took Saul's only living heir, Ishbosheth, and hoisted him on the throne basically so he could control um, through the military. And Ishbosheth was kind of this puppet king. There became a little bit of a conflict between Ishbosheth and Abner. Abner turned on him and basically said, that's it. I'm going to do what God actually wants to happen, and I'm going to unite the kingdom under King David uh, as was promised to him. And so David's going to be the king. And everything looked like it was going to be nice and rosy, but unfortunately, in an earlier battle, Abner had taken out the brother of David's general, and he was looking for revenge. And he killed Abner before he was ever able to finish uniting the kingdoms under David. And David mourned Abner's death in front of the nation and sent his condolences so everyone knew that David wasn't behind this, this death of Abner. Uh, but we're still kind of left in limbo of what's going to happen next. The kingdom has been set up for David, but the plan didn't work out. Abner's dead, and that's where we pick up in chapter 4. Verse 1, when Saul's son, this is Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rehab, Rechab, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, or the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth was also part of Benjamin. Because the Berethites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there until this day. 
So it's basically saying, Ishbosheth has found out, and now there are these two soldiers in his army that seem to be plotting something. They have something going on. That's as much as we know. They're from the tribe of Benjamin, and they should be loyal to Saul and his family line because Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had uh, a son who was lame in his feet. So Saul's grandson was paralyzed in the legs. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So now we've been introduced to this character who's going to play a role later on in the story. But it's Saul's grandson, Jonathan, David's best friend's son. Uh, Apparently, when Saul and Jonathan died and the news came to him, he was running away and he became paralyzed. Um, So that's as much as we know, but that will come into play later in the story. Not really tonight, though. Then the sons of Rimon and of Rimon the Berethite and Rechab and Bana set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. So now we have the soldiers of Ishbosheth. They're coming to see the king. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. So these were men. They were from the tribe of Benjamin, and from the tribe of Benjamin, they should have been loyal to Saul's household because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Ishbosheth was just laying in his bed, trusting these guys, and they came in under the pretense as though they were just gathering wheat for their household. And as they're there, they kill Ishbosheth. Now we're going to learn more about this. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. So what's going on is likely some of Abner's talks before he died have influenced some people. And these guys are thinking David's going to be the next king. Let's earn favor with him. And so they kill the king and they bring David Ishbosheth's head, thinking this is going to be a good thing. Now, this isn't unfamiliar to David. David did this with Goliath. When he killed Goliath, he cut off Goliath's head and he carried Goliath's head around in Jerusalem and brought it to Saul. And so this isn't something that would disgust David. He'd seen stuff like this before, but it didn't go the way that they thought it would. Because they're assuming that David is going to be like other kings. Right? They have been under the reign of Saul, and then they've been under the reign of Ishbosheth, which is really the reign of Abner, a military ruler. And so they're looking around at the world, and they've seen the way that other tyrants have ruled, and they're thinking, I want to gain influence. I want to gain the like. I want the king, the new king, to like me. I want to gain favor with the king. And so if I take out his enemies, I'm going to earn his trust. And this is kind of how the world worked 
in these ancient monarchies. And so they're expecting David to be like the rest of the world. But this is David's response. Instead of looking like the rest of the world, this is what David says. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adverse adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their heads and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So David's response was to utilize the law and say, you committed murder, and the law requires capital, capital punishment. You're not gaining favor with me. You didn't bring me good news because you broke God's law. I'm now going to hold you accountable to the law. And they get their rightful punishment under the Levitical law. And then he buries Ishbosheth's head with Abner in a place of honor in the city of Hebron. So this is how David responds completely differently from the world. Rather than taking political gain and bringing people in and trying to earn favor and help with them and giving them a place of honor like other kings would have done. Instead, he stands by the law and he executes justice. You committed murder and you thought you were going to get a reward from me. Instead, I'm going to execute actual justice. And he doesn't take the throne right away. Chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people and be ruler over Israel. So the people come to David, and they request him be the next king, and they give him this great name. They, said that, they say that he will be their shepherd as a ruler over them. And David has already acted like one in the fact that he didn't take the political favors from the man who told him about Saul's death. He didn't take the political favor from the, man, the men who killed Ishbosheth. Instead, he exacts, exacts actual justice, and he doesn't usurp the throne for himself. He waits on God's timing, and he lets the people come to him, and he ends up on the throne through favor rather than through intrigue. So therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David over Israel. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. David began his reign over all of Israel at 30 years old. Now, I bring this up because it was kind of the appointed time to start in your leadership role. Jesus waited. He, people kept coming to him. If you read, you know, in Luke and John, say, are you going to do this? And he would say, it's not my appointed time. Jesus' public ministry started when he was 
30 years old. And so there's a parallel here between David and Jesus in that David starts his official reign under the United Kingdom. He unites the kingdom of Israel at 30, and Jesus starts his public ministry at 30 years old. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. I also think that this is an interesting parallel that King David's reign over the entire United Kingdom of Israel is 33 years, which is how old Jesus was when he was crucified. Um, It's just an interesting parallel. There's nothing really of note there other than it's hard to bypass those numbers and not think that there might be more than coincidence. Jesus starts his reign or his public ministry at the same time David starts his his public and reign ministry over all of Israel, and David reigns for 33 years, which is the same age Jesus is when he's crucified. And so I just think that that's, it's, it's definitely worth mentioning. It's not worth being passed up. Verse 6, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. So now what's happening is David, he's now king over all of Israel, and he's ready to move from Hebron to Jerusalem. He knows that Jerusalem is the place. That's the place, that's the holy city, that's set apart for God's people, and David is ready to take it. And he, but the problem is, it's now inhabited by a people called the Jebusites, and they thought that the, the city of Jerusalem was so impregnable, was so unbeatable, that they basically had the lame and the blind as guards because of the way that Jerusalem is oriented on top of mountains, and there's a lot of mountains and valleys around it. It's a difficult place to conquer and easy to defend, and so they were pretty arrogant about this. They will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So David conquers Jerusalem. He conquers Zion. And this is how. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. What's really being said here is David is going to conquer Jerusalem. He's not going to be defeated by the weak, just because the defenses of the city are so good. He makes a different plan. And he realizes that the outer courts of the city and the walls and the mountains, that's going to be difficult and impossible for him to get through. But Jerusalem is also special in that there's a water source that runs underground. And it's known as the Gihon Spring, still there. In fact, this shaft is still there. You can climb up it if you want to and you go to Israel. David says, let's use the underground water tunnel to get into Jerusalem and conquer them from the inside rather than going over the outer walls. And so he basically says, whoever can do this, whoever the first person is that can climb up this well and help us conquer the city, you're going to be the captain. So then... David dwelt in the stronghold in the city, and called it the city of David, and David built all around them from Milo inward 
And so David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So what happened is Joab, who had been on David's bad list because of how he treated Abner, regains his position as captain because Joab is the one who's able to do this feat, to fulfill David's plan of going in through the tunnel and climbing up through the well and conquering Jerusalem from the inside out. I mean, this is better than the Trojan horse, right? They go into the city underground, climb up from the inside out, and they take the defenses out that way. It's brilliant. Verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had, he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So now David is mingling with kings from outside of Israel. And you're about to see how that affects him. Because David's already, he already has a weakness. We've already talked about it several times. And it comes up again. Verse 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the same names of the, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. So David again falls into the same sinful trap, the same fleshly trap, because he's dealing with the other kings. They're helping build him a house. He's making peace treaties. And as is the custom, he takes in wives from foreign lands to build peace treaties with foreign nations. But this is, as we talked about last week, descriptive versus instructive text. Descriptive text tells us what happened. It doesn't mean that it's approved by God because it's in the scriptures. It just means that it's telling us history. The instructive text about marriage is in Genesis. A man shall cling to his wife, singular. That's it. And for the king of Israel, Moses even specifically put in Deuteronomy 17 that the king should not have extra wives and horses and money and taxes. So, this goes against the instructive principle that God has put in place. Now, you don't see the initial rebuke in the scriptures, but you will see it played out in David's life as we go through this book. Because David's life, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, and there's a whole lot of ugly. And a lot of that ugly comes from the multiple marriages and the kids from different marriages in his life and his failure to live up to God's standard. And so you'll see that play out as we move through the text. But this is not approved by God. This is just telling us what happened, and this is one of David's failures of the flesh in living like the world. Verse 17, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now remember, before Saul died, David was living among the Philistines. And so now they've heard rumor, this guy that was on their side not too long ago when he was living in opposition to God, was on their side, and they're thinking, he's never going to make it back in Israel, but now all of a sudden he's king over the whole nation? And so the Philistines go and seek him out and seek to see what's going on. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim, 
So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? So now you can see David still, he's acting with a heart towards God because before he acts, he asks God his will. He's seeking God's plan before he commits an act. And God responds, The Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perazim, and they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord again. He seeks God's will. It says, you shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so. As the Lord commanded him, he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So they were close to Jerusalem, about five miles away from Jerusalem, and David drives them back all the way to the coastland of the Mediterranean because he listened to God's will and he sought God's will before he acted so he didn't get caught in a trap. Chapter 6, and this is where tonight's going to get really interesting. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called the name of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So he's, this is pointing out that on the ark, at the, on the top, on the mercy seat, there's the two angels who are facing each other with their wings covering their faces, and in the middle is that empty space, the mercy seat. And it's pointing out that God's spirit dwells there, with the people, because that's where the blood is sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sin of the people, and that's where the forgiveness is seen, because blood covers the law. So this is what he's talking about. So the name of the Lord dwells there on the Ark of God in between the cherubim. So they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So David is remembering how the ark was brought back. The Philistines at one point had captured the ark, but the ark caused havoc throughout the Philistine cities. Their god Dagon kept bowing down to the ark, and they kept getting sores and boils and tumors all over themselves in whichever city the ark dwelt in. So the Philistines said, we don't want to deal with this anymore. Let's give the ark back to the Jews. And so they brought the ark back on a cart with oxen pulling the cart. And so David's remembering the history of how the ark was brought back to Israel. And he's repeating that. But David's not a Philistine. David's someone who's under the covenant of God. And in Deuteronomy 17 again, one of the requirements of the king is to be in the scriptures, to be reading the scriptures and remembering God's word. And David is not doing that right now. He's following the Philistine example, not the scriptural example. You'll see what I mean in a minute. 
And so they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. All right. Then David and all the house of Israel, verse 5, played music before the Lord in all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, and on cisterns, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nechan's threshing floor, Uzzah put his hand on the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. So basically, this is an old wooden cart with wooden wheels, and oxen are pulling it. The ground is uneven. The ark got shaky, and the oxen got shaky. And Uzzah reaches out to grab the ark to stabilize it, and this is what happens. Verse 7, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Uzzah reaches out and touched the ark to stabilize it. Now they're trying to return the ark to the tabernacle. Their intentions are good. Uzzah is trying to make sure that the ark doesn't fall off of the cart. His intention is good. But he's going about everything the wrong way. And this is something that's really important to understand. God doesn't just judge us by our intention, but also by our actions. And when our actions are explicitly in opposition to his teaching, then our intentions don't really matter that much. There's a a famous quote. I think it's something along the lines of, we judge ourselves by our intentions but others by their actions because we like to be easier on ourselves but the truth is God judges us by our intentions and our actions and Uzzah's and David's actions are not good you'll see what I mean so David verse 8 David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David's response was to say, I don't understand what God was doing. Our intentions were pure. Our intentions were good. And God judged him for his actions. And I disagree with it. As if we get to sit in the place of judgment. Which we don't. God is the authority. God is the judge. We don't get to judge him. He gets to judge us. He's the one who is the author of right and wrong, not us. And so David is angry at God for a while, for about three months, because of this. It says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and had said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How? How can the ark of the Lord come to me if this happened? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his household. So for three months, David's David's angry with God, and he leaves the ark there, in this house of this guy, and for three months this guy is blessed. Obed-Edom is blessed because the ark is with him. And David's thinking, how can I get the ark where it belongs? Well, I forgot to bookmark it, so I'm not going to flip through the pages, but go to, to 1 Chronicles 15 as homework and read that chapter. Because here's what happens. 
David reads the scriptures. And in the first couple of verses of 1 Chronicles 15, he comes to the realization that only the priests are supposed to move the ark. There are specific poles made that the priests use to put through the rings in the ark to pick it up and carry it on their shoulders. And only the priests are able, are allowed to move the ark in the Levitical law. So what happens? David gets back in the scriptures and he understands what he did wrong. And the second time he does it right. And he brings the priests with him to carry the ark. And then every six steps they take with the ark, he sacrifices to God because he's repentant for his actions because he understands he didn't do what he was supposed to do as king. And he understands now God's in control and he handles it the right way. So verse 12, now it was told King David saying, the Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him because of the ark, the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was with those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fattened sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So here's the scene. David gets it right. He understands what's supposed to happen now. He brings the priests down to carry the ark. They do, they do it the right way. Every six steps, he's making a sacrifice to the Lord because he's repentant. And David's not wearing his royal garb. He's wearing common clothing. And he's dancing before God with joy. Verse 15, so David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Michal is Saul's daughter. She's the, Saul, she's the daughter of the original king. And she understood how Saul dealt with being a king. He cared about the pomp and circumstance. He cared about the position. He cared about the power. And she liked that. And she's looking at David dancing before the people, joyful that, that the ark is coming back to the tabernacle. And David's not even wearing his royal garb. And she's humiliated and embarrassed because she's the king's wife and the daughter of Saul. And she hates David for how this looks. I think we can see this in church sometimes where worship happens and we're just not comfortable with letting go. Right there are some, and there are a lot of churches, where people will just throw their hands up, shout to God, love and sing with gladness. They'll dance in the aisles. They'll just give it up because they're so joyful to be in the presence of God. And yet there are some of us who stand there with our arms crossed as if we're angry at the denominations or the people who are more free in their worship as though they don't have enough reverence and we look down on them. But David is here saying, no, no, no. I am in the presence of God and God is where he belongs. And I will dance for joy because this is a thing to be excited about. And worship is a thing to be excited about. Throw your hands up and let it go because God's presence is with you and we are meant to be a joyous people. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Show it. 
So he's leaping and shouting and Michal despises him. Verse 17. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of the hosts. Mind you, he did all of this without his royal clothes on. He just did it as a guy. This is the kind of leadership that I, I hope to embody, that I don't need to be so formal or dressed up or strict and, and tight-knit. I care about the scriptures and I care about their unique practice and I want to drive each verse into your heads and help you love them more. But I don't want to be stuffy and stifled. I want the joy of the Lord to show through uh, and I just want you to know that I don't belong on a pedestal. I'm just a regular guy, just like David. David was a shepherd from a field not that long ago. He got put in this position because of his humility before God, not because of his greatness. So verse 19, Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the men and the women, the men to everyone a loaf of bread and a piece of meat and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Now David goes home. David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and you can hear the sneering in her voice, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And she's so disgusted by his normalcy that he wasn't regal in front of everybody, that he wasn't putting himself above everyone, that she doesn't she is a reflection of David because she's his wife. And so she has seen that she's knocked down a peg because David decided to be normal in front of everyone. And so she's mad at him. And so David said to Michal, which is also kind of mean, um, but honest. David said to her, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. So David basically says, it was up to God who was going to be king. God chose me, instead of your father, and instead of the sons of your household. God chose me. And so my reaction to that is, I will worship God. I will play music in his presence, and I will be humble before the people. I will not lord myself over them. Sorry that you don't like that. But I'm going to continue to be who I've always been, because there must be a reason that God chose me. In the last verse that we'll close out with tonight, verse 23, Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This effectively severed the relationship between David and Michal. They're still legally married, but they didn't have a relationship anymore. And this goes to a biblical principle. Jesus told us not to be unequally yoked. This 
is what happened with David and Michal. David was someone who loved God and wanted to be humble before him. Michal was someone who loved her position of power and wanted to be exalted over the people. And their complete opposite personalities, especially in their reverence to God, caused a huge rift in their relationship. And it effectively ended with Saul having no more heirs because David and Michal were completely split. And so David's children came through all of the wives he had other than his first one, the one that it should have come through because David was unequally yoked. And oddly enough, this was actually Saul's plan. He wanted Michal to be a stumbling block to David. But David didn't allow Michal to drag him down. He did commit other problems. He did have other issues, and particularly adultery. But God turned that negative into something positive, uh, just like the scriptures tell us. You know, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, David wasn't perfect, but he was certainly called to God's purpose, and he turned the negatives in David's life ultimately into a positive. Um, and that's where we'll end tonight. And next week we'll be in chapter 7 exclusively. It's an incredibly important chapter theologically, um, and it makes a lot of the Bible make sense. So we're going to give it its own week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the things we can grab a hold of and, and gather out of here. Help us to experience the good things in David's life, to the moments when he doesn't act like the world, the moments when he's willing to be free in worship and stand up against anyone trying to tell him not to, the moments where he wants to be humble before you and seek your will, and help us to avoid the traps that he falls into. Help us to avoid wanting to fit into the world and look like the rest of them or assume that we should do something because it's what everyone else is doing. Help us to see the line between description and instruction and apply it accurately to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.